as we're kind of wrapping up the summer here, we've been going through a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray, looking at the Lord's Prayer, going line by line through the Lord's Prayer, uh, and, and taking it one week at a time, looking at each line and seeing how uh, Jesus himself teaches, how Jesus himself instructs us how to pray. And we believe as an elder team that God wants us to be a praying church. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? We believe that God wants us to be a church that doesn't just talk about prayer, doesn't just say that we value prayer, but to actually participate in prayer. The fact that we can go before our God and talk to him directly is an amazing thing. And so uh, kind of by way of transition, uh, we've been taking uh, at the beginning of each sermon time, one of the Psalms, one of the prayers that were written down in the word of God to help teach us how to pray. And so I'm gonna invite Samantha to come up. She's gonna read from Psalm 37, I'd invite you all to prepare your hearts to hear from God's word. And then when she's done reading, we'll stand together, say the Lord's prayer, and then dive in for tonight. So Samantha, read for us, please. Uh, This is God's word from Psalm 37, verses 21 through 29. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Amen. Thanks, Samantha. Let's all stand together as we say the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll open our time together in prayer. The words will be up on the screen if you uh, need to follow along with us, but let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, we're so thankful that we can come before you tonight and make our requests known to you. And God, we thank you that you're the kind of God, you're the kind of father who delights in hearing the requests, who delights in hearing the prayers of your children And God, I ask tonight as we uh, look at this prayer of give us this day our daily bread tonight, God, I pray that we would come with hearts that are full of humility, but hearts that are also full of confidence, knowing that uh, we are not God and we can't demand things from you, but God, you are a gracious and a good provider. God, I pray you'd guard my lips, help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word and and give us all soft hearts, teachable hearts, uh, that we may grow to look more like Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. All right, you can have a seat. I want to ask you a question. Can you remember a time in your life when you were really, really hungry? Can you think of a time like maybe the hungriest you've ever been in your life? Maybe for some of you, it was a period of fasting and prayer. You took a few days and, and abstained from food for the purpose of praying and seeking the Lord. Or maybe for some of you, you just had a really busy day at work and you just never found time to eat. And by the time you got home, you felt like you were gonna empty out the fridge and the pantry all in one fell swoop. Or maybe some of you are single moms and you, or you're, you're stay-at-home moms. You think, well, I'll, I'll eat as soon as the kids are all taken care of. And then like 14 years goes by and like, have I eaten? I don't think I have, right? 
Sometimes we can get really, really hungry. I can remember a time when I was really hungry. Uh, when I lived in Alaska, my brother and I went hunting uh, one time. I only ever went hunting with my brother one time because I was afraid I was going to end up shooting him by the end of the trip, and so I never went with him again. But I, I remember we were backpacking, we're hiking through the mountains, and I don't think we brought enough food because you burn a lot of calories at high elevations hiking up and down mountains. I was so hungry. By the time we went back home, I thought I was going to just clean out the entire house. Another question, can you remember a time when you were really full? You know, one of those meals where you just ate and ate and ate and you thought, if I take one more bite, the buttons are gonna burst off of this shirt. Maybe it was such a good meal. The food was so delicious. You just kept going back. Maybe the food wasn't that great, but you were bored. You were watching, you know, TV or something. Just kept eating. You're super full. As Americans, we have a very interesting relationship with food. Would you agree? We have an interesting relationship with food. We have, uh, by God's grace, a land of plenty. We have so much food that I actually read a statistic over the weekend that says that we throw away enough food to fill, get this, 700 football stadiums worth of food every year. And that's, that's from the grocery store to the garbage dump. Things that maybe go past the expiration date, things that people didn't buy, it goes straight to the garbage dump. 700 football stadiums worth of food. If you look at the media, if you, if you watch enough advertisements or look at the magazine covers, you'd say, wow, they're obsessed with eating healthy and having perfect looking bodies and, and being fit and being, uh, you know, choosing all the right foods and all the right ingredients. And yet uh, many of us struggle with the sin of gluttony. Can I say that in church? Is that okay? Uh, and gluttony, I would also say, it's not about your belt size, but it's about the appetites and the cravings of your heart. You say no to yourself. We have an interesting relationship with food in the United States of America. What's interesting in the Bible is that the Bible talks a lot about food. The Bible has a lot to say about food and the Bible ties so many teachings about food to the condition of our spiritual lives. When Jesus is praying, give us this day our daily bread, he means so much more than, than a literal loaf of bread. He's talking about our physical provision. He's talking about the things in life that we need or at least the things in life that, that we truly need. And it's not disconnected from our spiritual lives. The danger with pr this prayer Give us this day our daily bread. The danger with the prayer is that for many of us, we jump to that stage in the prayer life too quickly. We've been saying that for, for several weeks. It's not wrong. It's not sinful to ask God to provide for our needs. However, if many of us were honest, that's the first and maybe sometimes the only thing we really pray about. But Jesus is so gracious. In his prayer, he actually has set us up to now come before the Father with a right heart, a right attitude to make these sort of requests. The first thing he did is he, he helps us to know that we're adopted and beloved sons and daughters. That changes how we make a request. We don't come before God, a tyrant, begging him for a scrap of bread. And we certainly don't come before God, the vending machine, just trying to push the right combination of buttons to get something from him. No, we come before him as beloved adopted sons and daughters. That's what we saw uh, in the first phrase, uh, our father in heaven. We also come before him having gained the needed perspective by praising and worshiping him first. Taking time to just say, God, you're holy. God, you're amazing. God, you are valuable. You're precious. You're altogether worthy. That helps change our perspective. That helps us come before God with the right attitude saying, hallowed be your name. And also we come before God having already sought his will and his kingdom first. How many of you know that when God is in charge, things go better than when you or I are in charge? 
Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, before I come to you with my request, I wanna make sure that my heart's in the right place. I wanna make sure I'm seeing things as best as I can from your perspective. And now having set all of that up, Jesus says, come before God with the request for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And I will say this, there are two ways that we could mess up this section of prayer. There are two uh, proverbial ditches that we could fall into. So let me address those briefly. The first is this. The first ditch that we could fall into is not believing truly that God is a good provider. Some of us do not actually believe that God is a good provider. And I wanna show you from the scriptures that in fact he is. The first thing is this. It is in God's nature. It is in keeping with his character to say that he is exceedingly generous. How many of you believe that God is exceedingly generous? How many of you want to believe more that God is exceedingly generous? Because I would venture a guess that there are many of you who feel like God is generous maybe with other people or God is not as generous with me as he could be, that maybe you struggle with self-loathing or you struggle with feelings of condemnation, like God, God's generous with others, but he's not really generous with me. John 1.16 says of Jesus that from him we have received grace upon grace. That's the biblical way of saying grace multiplied. What do you have in your life? Think of all of the good things that you have in your life. It's all God's grace. And God is not like the pagan gods. You know, the definition of of paganism is, is that you have to go before the gods and you have to do certain chants or you have to do certain actions. You have to make the right sacrifices. You have to do the right rituals. You have to pay enough penance. And maybe, just maybe, if you're lucky, one of the gods will take pity on you and send the rain that you're praying for or send the, the crops that you're praying for. That's paganism. It's, it's divine arm twisting. Please, God, send it. The biblical picture of our God is that he is a loving and a gracious and a generous father. Amen? We do not go before God like the pagans do. We do not go and twist his arm. We go before him like beloved adopted children. And God is generous. He's exceedingly generous. He's not a miser. He doesn't say, okay, well, I guess here's a little bit of grace. No, he gives it all. He gives us so much more than we deserve. I love the, the parable of the prodigal son. You guys familiar with that, the parable of the prodigal son? We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Do you guys know what the word uh, prodigal means? We often think it means somebody who wanders. It's an old-fashioned word. We don't use it very much, and it means lavish and excess. Do you guys know, like, just way too much. The story is there's, there's, there's two brothers. I'll focus on the younger one for a minute. The younger brother asks for his share of the inheritance. He gets his dad's money. He leaves his dad's house and he goes and he lives a prodigal life, a lavish and excess life. He wastes his money on food. He wastes his money on partying. He wastes his money on wild living, on prostitutes, the whole nine yards. And at the end of the day, he winds up broke, penniless, friendless, homeless. And it says he gets a job feeding pigs and he's so hungry and he's so destitute that the food that the pigs are eating looks good to him. And he has this light bulb moment. He says, wait a minute, my dad is a rich businessman. He has servants that work for him that eat better than I am. I'm gonna go back to my dad and I'm gonna say, would you please let me be one of your servants? Would you let me be like a hired hand? It says he starts walking back to his father Jesus in this story says that the father was actually out on the front porch looking for him. And when he sees him coming from a great distance away, the old man, the father, grabs up his robes and starts running towards him. 
And in our culture, you know, old guys run, that's fine. But in their culture, old guys did not run. I, I wish I was an old guy in that culture because I hate running, right? Some of you like jogging, you're weird people, but God bless you, right? They, they just didn't run. It was an embarrassing thing. It was beneath them. This father gathers up his robes and runs to the son. It says he grabs him, he hugs him, he kisses him. And then the father says this to the servants. He says, bring quickly the best robe. What, what kind of robe? The best one. Don't just put new clothes on him. Get like the nicest clothes, right? This isn't the, this isn't the secondhand store stuff. This is like the, the brand new, you know, brand new from the, the designer. Go get the best robe put a ring on his hand. That's a, a symbol of being a part of the family. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. The, the new Aaron Gray translation. That's, we're having steak tonight. We're having good steak tonight. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The point of this portion of the story is that the father was prodigal. The father was lavish, was extravagant in his celebrating the return of this son to the family. And the point that we are to walk away with is that God is that type of God. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that God is begrudgingly giving you the grace that you've received? Or do you believe that he's the kind of father who says about you, put the nicest robe on, put the family ring on, kill the fatted calf, pour the best wine, strike up the band. The, the father has a band. He's like, just got a band on retainer. Like just in case the son came home that day, like no, not, didn't happen today, tomorrow, come back. He's got a band at the house. I like this dad. That's our God, church. That's our God. In every possible sense of the word, God is generous. Second thing I want you to know about God being a good provider is he doesn't just provide for our spiritual needs. He does provide for our physical needs as well. God does not see this divide that you and I sometimes experience, this earthly versus spiritual divide. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we can think of spiritual things like God cares about me not coveting or me not being angry or me not being lustful. But then there's these practical concerns and God's just kind of disconnected or disinterested in them. And as, as a pastor, I've heard people say this to me numerous times that I didn't want to bother God with my prayers for these seemingly little, insignificant, piddly things. I wanted to focus on more spiritual matters. Let me tell you this, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that we see. In Genesis 1, God created the land, the, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals. When he got done on each day, when he got done creating those things, what did God say? What did he say? It's good. God is not anti-matter. God is not anti-stuff. God does not draw the same dividing line, dividing line that you and I do between earthly things and spiritual things. To God, all of these things are spiritual things. Amen? God cares more than you realize about things like clothing, about things like your food. God cares very deeply about these things because they are related to our spiritual well-being. In Matthew chapter six in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling people to not be anxious and not be fearful saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Don't be fearful. Don't, don't stress out about those things. He says, for the Gentiles seek after those things, meaning people who don't believe in God, they just run after, that's their whole life. And get this, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, yes, focus on the kingdom of God. Focus on uh, you know, your spiritual health, your spiritual well-being, but your father is not disconnected or disinterested in so-called earthly matters. He actually cares. The third thing I want you to see about God being a good provider is that sometimes, very simply, you don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. That's direct quotation of James chapter four, verse two, or like James continues on to say, it's like, or you do ask, but you ask with wrong motives. You wanna spend it on your own passions. Sometimes you don't have simply because you do not ask. And I think some of us don't ask because we feel maybe self-sufficient. If you have money in the bank, if you have things relatively under control, if you are the kind of person who does a decent job of planning, you kind of can, can forget your need. You can kind of forget, oh yeah, I actually need to ask God for these things. But I think there's others of you, and this is who I wanna to talk to. Some of you don't ask, again, because you feel undeserving. You feel like, how could God possibly take an interest in me? How could God possibly take an interest in my needs, my daily bread? I don't wanna bother him. I'll, I'll, I know he's got bigger things on his plate. And I'm here to tell you that if you are a Christian, you are a beloved adopted son of the most high God and you have been given unlimited access to come before God in prayer anytime, day or night. There is no request too small. Can you believe that? I know somebody here struggles to believe that. I know that because we have these conversations. But I want you to understand that God is a good provider. The Bible says it repeatedly time and time again that he is ever lending generously, that he is ever giving. It's his delight to bless his children. If that's the one ditch, maybe kind of an over-humility, over-lowering of oneself, kind of having an attitude almost of an orphan instead of an adopted son or daughter. The other ditch that we can fall into is, is having pride, <laughs> assuming, God, you owe me. This is uh, getting our needs and our wants mixed up. Sometimes we say, I need things. And what we really mean is I want things. I actually had this experience recently with one of my daughters. My wife and I, uh, we're iPhone people. And so whenever we upgrade our, our iPhones, we get the new one, uh, we pass down the old ones to all of our children and they use them on road trips and things like that. If you're a parent of young children, I highly recommend it. It will buy you some, some time and sanity every once in a while. But we pass them on. We give the, the old iPhones to them and they can play with them and have games on them and whatnot. And, and it just so happened that one of my daughters, I won't say which one, uh, she lost her iPod, her iPhone. And she came to me. I've been waiting. I knew this day was coming. I knew it was coming. I've been waiting for it. And it just happened in the last few weeks. She said, dad, it's official. I've lost my iPhone I need a new one. And I jumped on that like a hungry dog on a T-bone steak. And I'm like, no, you don't need. And I launched into a sermon. You can see the eyes rolling. And I'm like, dad, here you go again. I've been waiting. I was ready for this moment. <laughs> Sometimes we, as adults though, we still get the difference between our needs and our wants mixed up. Amen? We still struggle with that. And some of that has to do with the fact that we don't have a biblical perspective on money. We don't have a biblical perspective on possessions. One thing I would say about that is that the Bible clearly teaches throughout, consistently, the Bible clearly teaches that money is not evil, but it is powerful. Nowhere does the Bible say that money is evil. And, and contrary to that misquoted verse you maybe have heard, money is not the root of all evil. That is not in the Bible. However, yes, you're welcome. <laughs> However, 
you would be hard pressed to find any passage in the Bible about money that didn't also include some sort of a warning because it is a very powerful tool that must be handled with wisdom and with maturity. So money is not evil. God doesn't care about the, the, the number on your bank statement. He cares about the condition of your heart. I wanna go, let's go to the source, that, that verse in 1 Timothy 6 that is often misquoted. It says this, those who desire to be rich. You see that word desire? That's the key word. It's about the, the desires of one's heart. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When your heart is all wrapped up with the love of money, you will make foolish decisions. And then the apostle Paul says, for the love of money, there it is again, it's not money, it's the love of money, your, your heart's cravings, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the Bible does not teach that money is evil, but it's, it's dangerous, it's powerful, it must be handled very carefully. Second thing that the Bible teaches is that money is not a very reliable gauge for spiritual maturity. Money is not a reliable gauge for spiritual maturity. Uh, there's, there's one group of people who like to point out certain verses in the Bible, and they are there. There are absolutely verses in the Bible that talk about God providing financial blessing as one of the signs of his, his grace and one of the signs of his favor. Financial material possession can be one of the signs of God's blessing, but it is not always a sign of God's blessing. Amen? Uh, there, there, are, there are wealthy people in the Bible who are very godly, who are very righteous. There are people like Abraham, who was, he was quite the businessman. He had large caravan that traveled with him. He had servants, he had many herds and flocks. There are people like Joseph of Arimathea, who was rich enough that he could give Jesus one of his, his tomb after Jesus was crucified. There are righteous people who are rich. But there are also people like evil kings or, or rulers or those who got their money through fraudulent means. You ever read in like the Psalms or in the prophets where they complain like, God, these, these wicked people and these rich people, they, they seem like they've got it all going for them. You ever feel that way? I mean, just in our society, in our culture, there are people like Hugh Hefner who have built up billions and billions of dollars of wealth exploiting women and building an empire based on pornography. That is not a sign of God's blessing in case we were unclear on that. That is absolutely unrighteous use of wealth. So, so that's one camp of people who like to say, well, if they've got money, they must be being blessed by God. But that's not true. There's another group of people who like to say, well, if they're really broke and really poor, they must be being blessed by God. They must be doing that whole Jesus was homeless thing and they're really righteous like Jesus. Not necessarily. There are people who are poor and who are broke because they are lazy and they refuse to work. Amen. There are people who are broke and who are poor because they make foolish decisions with their money. But there are also people who are economically less well-off because they have chosen to make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom or for the sake of what God has called them to. You guys, money is not a reliable gauge of spiritual maturity. God cares about the condition of our heart, not the balance on our checking account. I love this verse in Proverbs 30. Listen to this verse. Listen to how uh, uh, Solomon speaks of this. He says, it's a prayer. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. The first thing he starts with is his character. And then he makes this request. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Isn't that an interesting prayer? God, 
I don't want to be really rich. I don't want to be filthy rich because if I have too much money, I am afraid that I will forget you. I'm afraid that I'll forget how dependent upon you I really am. I'll start to trust in my money. But God, I also don't want to be dirt poor because I know my selfish heart. I might be tempted to steal and I'm going to dishonor you. God, just feed me with the food that is needful for me. Keep me content. See, about, see how it's about character and not about the amount of possessions? Third thing on this is that Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Don't we wish that that passage said, give us this day our daily filet mignon and lobster and cabernet, right? Give us this day the, the daily luxuries that we want. No, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes we really need perspective, Right? I remember uh, there's a story I've heard before. I don't think it's just an anecdote, but there's a, a really wealthy girl in class and for her English class, she had to write a short story about a poor family. That was the teacher's assignment, write a short story about a poor family. And so the rich girl wrote the story. It says this, it said, once upon a time, there was a very poor family. The father was poor, the mother was poor, the brothers and the sisters were poor, the butler was poor, the maid was poor, the servants were poor, the gardener was poor, everybody was poor. They were a very poor family, right? Sometimes we need that perspective change. We need to, to understand that, that we see things through, through one perspective that's not always uh, the most true or the most accurate. Let me, let me ask you this. Here's our perspective change. Ready? Show of hands, how many of you went out to eat this week at a restaurant? Raise your hand, okay? So what you're telling me is you had a team of hired servants Go behind a protective wall, prepare your food with ingredients and spices imported literally from across the world. And then servants brought it out to your table and laid it before you. And then they kissed your signet ring and pledged loyalty to you. No, I'm just kidding, right? But do you understand that the point being that if you have gone out to eat at a restaurant this week, you just experienced something that for the vast majority of human history was reserved for royalty. You just experienced something that for almost all of human history, kings and noblemen got to experience and commoners didn't. But we go and we have people in the food service industry, they come and they bring their food, they bring food out to our table and we rate them on Yelp, <laughs> right? We need a perspective change, right? We're instructed to pray for our daily bread. Bread is so basic. Bread is so fundamental. You can live on just bread. It won't be as uh, pleasurable, but you can live on just bread. Sticking in this passage in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul's talking a lot about money, he says this, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. How many of you want to grow in contentment? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The Israelites, if you go in the Old Testament, this, this theme of bread is very much tied to the Israelite story. They, they were set free from slavery Moses led them out of Egypt and they go, they're going to a land that God says it's gonna be filled with milk and honey. That's a, a biblical sort of poetic way of saying it's gonna be a really agriculturally rich land. You're gonna have lots of cows. You're gonna have lots of bees. I'm, I'm assuming lots of vegetables too, right? It's gonna be a great place. You're gonna eat well. But in the middle, we have to go through this wilderness. We have to go through this desert and it's gonna be hard and you're gonna get hungry. And so they start going through the desert and the Israelites start complaining. Oh, we're so hungry. Remember what it was like back in Egypt when we had, you know, food and vegetables and melon and steak and like, yeah, and beatings and bricks without straw and right, you remember that? But they start complaining, oh, we need, we need food. And so God in his grace, again, this is God being a generous provider. He rains bread from heaven on them. 
And just, that must have been a trip, right? There is food falling from the sky. God is so gracious. But then what do they do? They get sick of the bread and they start complaining about the bread. God, ah, it's more bread. Really? More bread? We want some meat. We need, we need meat. God says in a moment of divine exasperation, okay, fine. I'm gonna give you so much meat. And this is a quote. It's, it'll be coming out your nose. And then just quail, just descend on them like birds, dirty birds, right? Eat the meat. Enjoy it. <laughs> you kind of get the picture of like God, like with a toddler, like his child, like just eat it, come on. But if we're honest, I think we'd, we'd have to say our hearts are prone to that same sin of the Israelites. We lack contentment. We want more than what, what we have. We think we're owed more. And Jesus said to pray for our daily bread. The other thing about that is that we're instructed to pray for our daily bread. Our daily bread. You know, the Israelites, when they collected that, that manna, they were only allowed to collect one day's worth. They were only allowed to collect as much as they needed. And if they collected more, what would happen? It would rot. It would go bad. On the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to collect two days worth and it would uh, uh, divinely stay good for those two days. But any other day, if they collected more than they were supposed to, it would go bad. Our daily bread, when we pray this, give us this day, our daily bread, it's a reminder that each and every single day we come before God as needy. You all woke up this morning and you had breath in your lungs. Where did that come from? That came from God. You're, you still have blood coursing through your veins. Even if you have several months of reserves in your savings account, that is not certain and it can disappear in a moment, amen? I'm not big into the, the stock market, but I, I read an article because the headline really grabbed my attention. I guess it was kind of a bad week on Wall Street. And I read that the top five technology companies in the world lost $45 billion of worth in one day. $45 billion of, of, of money on Wall Street vanished in one day. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us for everything to enjoy. I like that this verse says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if you get a stake, if you have extra money in your bank account, praise God. I mean that literally, thank him, praise him. However, don't set your hopes on it because it could be gone tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't know if anybody here has ever uh, experienced the challenge of, of poverty or, or, or knowing hunger. Maybe some of you know this right now and you understand what it's like to go day by day wondering if there's gonna be food in the pantry, wondering if there's gonna be food in the refrigerator. It is a fearful, it is a weighty thing. But when we come before our Father in this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we're reminded that all that we have comes from him. And we can ask with confidence. I like the way that R.C. Sproul says, he says, one of the things that betrays our fallen condition is this concept of the self-made man, one who takes credit for the bounty of his goods and forgets the source of all his provision. We must remember that God gives us all we have in the ultimate sense. So those are the two ditches. We can lean too heavily on this humility and, and just not, come before God with confidence, or we can be prideful and come before him kind of with a demanding attitude. Jesus says, come with both, come with humility and come with confidence as beloved sons and daughters. I wanna make a shift now and I want you to see that 
when Jesus is talking about bread, like I said at the beginning, he's not simply talking about food. He's talking about provision. And actually what's really interesting is that bread in the Bible is used consistently, consistently as a metaphor for life itself. If you don't get bread, if you don't eat, at some point your body will give out and you will die. And so when Jesus himself and the other writers of the Bible talk about bread, they are very often trying to drive us to a deeper hunger, a deeper need, something that is at the soul level, not at the stomach level. And Jesus, in fact, makes his claim to be the bread of life. There's three things about this I want you to see. The first is this. Jesus shows us the model. Jesus shows us what it looks like to value God, to value God's will, to value God's word above the need for daily bread. In Luke chapter four, Jesus has just started his public ministry. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And then Luke writes the most obvious verse in the entire Bible. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Thank you, Dr. Luke. Did your medical insight <laughs> come in handy there? At 40 days of not eating, yes, I dare say that Jesus was hungry. And the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, if you had the power and the ability to miraculously transform stones into bread, what would you do? Let me submit to you that each and every one of us would have failed miserably. Let me take it a step further. We may not have been in this exact scenario, but at some point in each of our lives, we have been asked to prioritize earthly comfort versus eternal things and weighty things. And we have all failed that test time and time again. Amen? We have all failed this test. You and I have at some point or another said yes to the temporary comfort and convenience over the eternal word of God. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus answers from the scripture. He says, you know what's more important than food? He said, I could starve to death. I, I could go hungry, but it's more important to honor God, not to take some deal from the, from the devil. You see that Jesus shows us a perfect example, but you know what's better than an example? Jesus doesn't just show us a perfect example. Jesus actually feeds us with himself. Jesus actually feeds us with himself. He feeds us his own life, the life that he has within himself. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, flip over to John chapter six. I'm gonna spend a minute in John chapter six. And this is one of the most, um, I'm gonna use the word interesting sections of Jesus teaching. John chapter six, I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but pick up in verse 25. The, the scenario is this, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. You guys remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? A couple of loaves, a couple of fish, you know, not very much food and boom, a whole crowd is fed. And the people were happy <laughs> and they thought, this is great. We have found a ruler who could now wipe out the hunger problem in our nation. We have found a guy who is one heck of an amazing cook. He can really do a lot with a little. And so they come back, they're looking for him. They're looking everywhere for him, but Jesus is hiding from them. <laughs> so in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, that's commitment. They're really looking for him. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Why are you playing hard to get? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, 
not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not looking for me because you were amazed at God's provision. You're just hungry and you want more food. You're not seeing the deeper meaning. You're not seeing the bigger picture. You just want more food. And then Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. Oh, oh, Jesus, you have something better? (laughs) Not the food that perishes, but this food that endures to eternal life? So they said to him, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. Right answer. If someone says, I have bread that never goes bad, I have food that will never leave you unsatisfied, you should ask for it. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven. Okay, Jesus, give us this bread. Hey, the bread is me. And by the way, I came down from heaven, and you don't even believe in me. You don't even understand what's happening in front of your face. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him (laughs) because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Like, what is this crazy guy starting to say? So Jesus answered, skipping out of verse 42, I am the bread of life. He's starting to repeat himself. He's trying to get a point across here, right? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at this point, the Jews in the audience started getting really uncomfortable wait a minute, I thought we were talking about eating bread. Now we're talking about eating your flesh. Pretty sure the Old Testament has some things to say about cannibalism that are not good. What is this guy saying? They're starting to bristle. The Jews then disputed among themselves, verse 52, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? (laughs) And Jesus is not going to let them off the hook. Here he goes, you ready? What I, I would put this up as one of the most awkward and uncomfortable conversations in the entire Bible. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Yeah, <laughs> I see it on your faces. You, imagine the shock and repulsion that they would have on their faces. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. By the way, time out, side point. If you're ever having a conversation with somebody who's like, oh, I I think Jesus was a good spiritual teacher, a good moral teacher, take them to that verse because that is not good moral teaching right there. Hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, that's not good spiritual teaching. Either Jesus is a crazy person or he's trying to get at a deeper reality here. And he doesn't, he doesn't just let off there. He keeps going. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. That's a stunning claim. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he just won't let off. He's just pushing the gas pedal all the way to the floor. Whoever 
whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. You want me to feed your stomachs bread, but what you don't understand is that at the deepest level of your soul, you have a spiritual malnourishment that can only be remedied by feasting on me. The deepest hunger you have ever felt, the biggest pit in the bottom of your stomach you've ever experienced is nothing compared to the condition of your soul apart from Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian, I would say to you here tonight, I love you, but you are spiritually malnourished. You need the bread of life. You need Jesus in your life to meet that craving that that only he can satisfy. And if you are here and you are a Christian, are you feasting daily on Jesus? Are you finding your deepest satisfaction, the deepest place in your soul being met in Christ Jesus? There's a pastor named Sam Storms who I respect tremendously. He put it this way in one of his sermons. He says, if you find yourself not hungering for Jesus, not hungering for his word, what are you snacking on in between meals? I know. That's why I let him say the zingers. I can quote somebody else and I'm just the messenger, right? For those of you who are Christians, is Jesus truly the one that's feeding your soul? Or are you seeking satisfaction elsewhere? Are you seeking to have your soul fed by temporal means? Are you like these Jewish people coming in and saying, just give me more bread, give me more bread. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Interestingly enough, I love the way this story concludes. I didn't uh, type it out, but the crowds just leave. <laughs> they, in large scale, they just abandon Jesus. They up and go. And Jesus kind of walks back to his, his disciples, his 12 disciples. He kind of leans in. He goes, well, what do you guys say? Are you out too? And Peter goes, where are we going to go? And in a moment of clarity, he says, you have the words of eternal life. This is a hard saying. This is a hard teaching. What Jesus is driving at is that our physical hunger serves as a reminder for the deeper level spiritual hunger that we all experience. And the only way that we are going to be fed is in Jesus Christ. So it's not just that Jesus shows us an example. Jesus actually goes to the cross. His body is broken. His blood is spilled out on the ground in order that we might be spiritually satisfied, in order that the hunger that we experience might be met in him. Jesus feeds us himself. And all who trust in Christ, all who trust in his broken body and his shed blood can have their spiritual hunger met in him. It's not just that Jesus shows us an example. It's not just that Jesus feeds us presently, but it's also that we are invited to a feast at the end of the age. Did you know that the end of the story for the Christian is a party? Did you know that the end of the story for all who trust in Jesus is the wedding supper of the lamb? This is what the prophet Isaiah says about that last day upon the return of Jesus. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, the Lord himself will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Look, if, if God is the one throwing the party, if God is the one cooking the steak and pouring the wine, you know it's gonna be the best, amen? 
and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I don't care what boring descriptions of heaven you may have heard. I'm telling you, church, the end of the story is a feast and it's a party and it's gonna be a good one. Is that good news to anybody else? Is that good news? Is that something worth looking forward to? Is that something worth praying for the return of Jesus? And, and think about this. I don't know what the best food you've ever tasted is. The best, the best strawberry, the best fruit, the, the most delicious strawberry you've ever tasted is still the product of a fallen and broken world. Can you imagine the feast we'll have when all things are set to right? When Jesus has returned and Satan is dealt with and sin is dealt with and the, the death itself is done away with and the world is perfected and renewed. Did you know Jesus is not just interested in the salvation of your soul. He is interested in the redemption of the entire universe. And we're a part of that. The end of the story is death is swallowed up. All tears are wiped away and we will feast with our Lord and our savior, Jesus. That's good news, amen. When we, when we gather together at the table every week, at the, at, the, at the Lord's table, we have bread, we dip it into the wine or juice. It's a, it's a meager feast. I hope you're not hungry when you come to church because that's not gonna do very much. But it's, it's, it's a picture of this gospel. When we gather at the table, we look back and we say, Jesus accomplished the whole work of salvation for us through his broken body and his, his spilled out blood. And we look presently, we say, right now, today, Jesus is feeding me. He's spiritually nourishing me. The, the bread and the wine, there's nothing magical about them, but there is something mysterious about God's grace ministering to us through these elements. And when we gather at the table, it's a look forward on the day when we will feast on what the Bible calls Zion, the mountain of God. We will feast with him and enjoy the richest meal we've ever enjoyed. Communion is for Christians. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, even if you're a guest, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, the invitation is wide open. Give your sin to Jesus. Give him your spiritual hunger and allow him to satisfy you. I wanna close with this thought that God has been incredibly generous to us and the more that we understand that, the more it will result in our generosity. Notice first, I didn't draw this point out earlier, but notice that Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. We are not instructed to pray for my daily bread. Give me this day my daily bread, right? It's our daily bread. God loves you individually. Jesus died for you individually, but we are not called to be individualistic, amen? You're always saved. We're always called and redeemed into a people, into a family. And so when we pray for our daily bread, we have concern for our, our fellow man. We have concern for our Christian brothers and sisters to be sure, but even beyond that, God wants us to care for our neighbors. God wants us to care for those that we're in relationship with, that are, that are in our neighborhoods, our communities. We're, we're to pray for our daily bread. So when you come before Jesus, don't just pray for your own blessing, don't just pray for your own provision, but that you might be a blessing to others. Secondly, I would say to not practice generosity is to not understand God's generosity. Okay, how many people do you think know that they need to be more generous, okay? Just quick show of hands. How many of you know I need to be more generous, right? Okay, the half of you who are honest. I'm just kidding. Not really. Uh, we all know that we need to be more generous. And I could stand up here and I could say, be more generous. And that would inspire you for like maybe two minutes, right? Yeah, I guess I do need to be more generous. 
What's better than me yelling at you or you yelling at somebody else, just be more generous, is to remind you of how generous our God has been with us. Whenever I talk with somebody who, who just doesn't understand that generosity thing, I love to just start telling them about what our God has done. Because when the more we understand that, the more we internalize that, the more it will naturally overflow into generosity with others. I don't want to use the law to inspire you for like five minutes. I want to use the gospel of God's grace to help well up into you an overflow of generosity to others. Church, you need the gospel. Psalm 37, the, the psalm that we read earlier in the service, it says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. If you've been made righteous by the gift of God's grace, the natural response is generosity and giving. Third thing I would say too, just by way of challenging some of you is generosity is not dependent on our circumstances. If you can't say amen, you gotta say ouch, right? Generosity is not dependent on your circumstances. I know people who say, I want to be generous just as soon as I get a raise at work. Generosity is not about how much you have to give away. It's about a condition of your heart. If you wanna be generous, you practice generosity. Now, I will tell you some of the most generous people I know are some who, who you would not say are economically particularly well off, but they're just generous. They just love to be a blessing to people. Sure, maybe you're not gonna single-handedly fund an orphanage in Honduras, right? But what do you have that God's asking you to share with someone else to practice generosity? Let me say this. I am so thankful for the people of Sound City Bible Church. Let me just speak to you for a brief moment. When we, when we relaunched in January... Uh, I will admit to you, I had a significant amount of fear in my heart, a decent amount of concern. How is this church replant gonna go? Are we gonna have any money? Are we gonna end up having to shut down and fire Travis or me or whomever? And I wanna just say to you guys, God has been so incredibly faithful to this church through you and through your contributions and your generosity. Let me say something. The month of July for us as a church was our biggest tithes and contribution month that we've ever had. No pastor has ever said that about the summer giving months. You just witnessed a first that we had the most donations in the month of July. And I just want you to know that on behalf of the elder team, we're so grateful for you and your generosity. And, and we as a church uh, have made a, a decision. We're taking all the money that comes in, 10% uh, of it goes right into savings so that we can always make sure to be stockpiling for maybe if God wants us to purchase a building in the future or if there's economic hard times, I don't know. But also to take 10% that comes in and just give it away other pastors, other church planners, other ministries. So when you're giving here, uh, your money is, is going to support the work of the ministry here. It's going to work, support the work of the ministry elsewhere uh, to care for members. We've been able to bless people who have been in need financially. It's just been an amazing thing. But I want your generosity, church, to not just be here at Sound City Bible Church. I want you to seek to be generous disciples in whatever opportunities God sets in front of you. Amen? I want us to be a generous church corporately, but I want us to be generous disciples individually. I think that would be honoring to Jesus. I think that would be joyful and healthy for all of us. So just by way of finishing this, just putting this into practice, just some practical tips. Number one, this week in your prayer life, ask God for what you need. Don't be afraid to go before your father and ask him for what you need. Number two, remember to ask with both humility and boldness. Humility knowing that we don't, we're not owed anything from God, but boldness knowing that we've been invited to come before him. Number three, practice discerning between your needs and your wants. Just, be, just because you're gonna pray for something, maybe ask yourself first, is this a need or is this a want? Let me just test that. Make sure that my heart's not getting things out of alignment. 
Number four, practice fasting. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about fasting, but this might be a great opportunity this week uh, for you to take a day and to abstain from food, to allow yourself to feel that physical hunger as a way of, of driving yourself towards Christ, as a way of reminding yourself of your deepest spiritual need. Uh, we're gonna try to put up some information on our website uh, this week about fasting, just some tips on how to do it and, and what it is and what it isn't. It's not paganism, by the way. You're not twisting God's arm for anything. But it is a way to remind yourself of the deeper hunger for, for Jesus that we have. Number five, practice generosity. Just seek to be generous with those that God puts in your path. And number six, practice gratitude. Don't let the, the prayer for the meal just become a, a ritual that you do. Genuinely thank God. I have food. There's food on the table right now. Thank you, God, for that blessing and, and practice gratitude in all that you do. So in light of this, I wanna call us now to a time of response. We're gonna respond as we do in, in a variety of ways. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so if the financial stewards would please come forward, uh, collect the offering, we'd appreciate that. If you're a guest, you're not obligated to give. You're welcome to if you'd like but this is something that we practice as, as worship to Jesus. And if you want information on how to give online or give uh, text to give, there's information on your Connect card that you were handed. While they're collecting the offering, let me just go over a few discussion questions, things to generate conversation this week in your community groups, in your homes. First one is this. Do you agree that God is as concerned about physical needs as he is about our spiritual ones? Why or why not? Let's talk about that. Talk about that division between earthly and spiritual matters. Number two, share stories of God's grace where he has provided for your practical needs. I bet there are some, in this church, some great testimonies of God's grace and God's provision. So share them as an encouragement with others. Number three, where in your life are you tempted to focus more on the gift instead of the giver? Where do you get focused on the stuff instead of on the God who richly provides everything for us? Number four, be vulnerable. Share where in your life are you afraid to ask God for the things that you need? I know that more than one of us struggle with that. So where are you afraid to ask God for those things? And number five, a little homework, a little follow-up. Read Deuteronomy 8, one through 10. What does this passage say about God's provision, God's instruction, and our obedience? In addition to the discussion questions, we have some prayer points, things for you to, to consider and to really pray about this week. The first one is pray that God would give us a heart of gratitude for the blessings he's given to us. Number two, pray for areas in your own life that you're in need and focus on your own life and circumstances. You know, last week when we prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done, I encouraged you to focus on others, not yourself, to focus on those around you. This week, it's, it's very, very uh, fair game to focus on your own needs. Number three, pray for our church. Pray that God would provide resources, leaders, funds, and opportunities for Sound City to proclaim the gospel. Uh, like I said, financially, God's been very generous. One area that we have need is for more leaders to raise up, maybe for new community group leaders, people to, to lead and to serve in our children's ministry in the morning services. There are a lot of opportunities, especially as the fall is, is kind of kicking back in and families are coming back. We, we could really use a lot of people to step up and say, I'd love to help. I'd love to serve and contribute to the life of the church. Let's pray for that. And number four, pray that God would use each of us to bless and provide for those who are poor and needy, both spiritually and physically. Uh, in a moment, we're gonna sing. We're gonna celebrate our, our great God, our great provider. We're also gonna come to the Lord's table and we're gonna receive of his grace through the bread and through the wine. But before we do that, we're gonna take a few minutes right now in service and we're gonna pray together. And we'll leave these prayer points up on the screen. And if you uh, haven't been here before or didn't know we were doing this, surprise, we're gonna take time right now to pray. And what we've been doing is just 
giving you permission if you wanna sit individually and just pray on your own, that's totally fine. But if you'd be so brave, if you'd be so bold as to maybe gather up with a couple, two, three or four people nearby you and as brothers and sisters in Christ, pray together and, and even share needs that you might have and pray for one another. So can we do that, Sound City? All right, look around, see who you might wanna ambush to join your prayer circle. I'm just kidding. If you're a painful introvert, you have all the permission in the world to say no. But I'm gonna count to three and then we're gonna gather together and we're gonna pray. You ready? Let's pray, church. One, two, three. Let's pray.